Awesome. All right. So, hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Security Headlines. Today, we got a really exciting episode ahead of us because we're talking about a really nice tool that I personally use to secure my backups. And with us today, we got the founder of TorSnap, Colin. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So w- what is TorSnap for everyone that doesn't know? So the, the tagline is online backups for the truly paranoid. Um, that pretty much captures it. it TorSnap is an, an online backup service. Um, it, it is designed to run on Unix systems, although there are some people who use it on Windows via the Windows subsystem for Linux. Uh, there's people who use it on OS X, which is mostly Unix, but not completely Unix. Uh, it works there just fine. But yes, it, it is an online backup service, as the name suggests, uh, with it's, it is similar to TAR. So anybody who has used the TAR tool to create archives, maybe even creating archives on tapes, uh, although far fewer people have, have actually used physical tapes these days, and it stores them all online, but it's designed with paranoia in mind. So everything is encrypted. You, you are the only person who has the keys to decrypt your data while I run the service that stores the data for you using Amazon S3 as a backend. There's no way for me to actually read your data. I can't even see the, the names of the archives you store, never mind the names of the files or how many files you have or the data in the files. That's, that's awesome. I think like this is something we really need today in these times. But how did you get the idea for TorSnap? So I started TorSnap back in 2006. And uh, at the time, I was the FreeBSD security officer. Okay. Um, I, I think it was um, August or September of 2005 that I became security officer. I think that's it. Anyway, I, I was FreeBSD security officer at the time. And so on behalf of the FreeBSD project, I was dealing with a whole bunch of security advisories that you know people had found bugs, but we hadn't disclosed them yet. We hadn't put out the patches. We hadn't put out the advisories. And one of the, the major things that the security officer has to do in FreeBSD is coordinate with other, other projects oh. because FreeBSD has a lot of code which is shared with other people. So we have OpenSSL, we have OpenSSH, we have SendMail. Uh, when there's bugs in these projects that get used by many different operating systems, we all have to agree on when we're going to send out our, our announcements because you don't want to have you know, different people announcing at different times and then you know, word gets out that there's this, this vulnerability but there aren't patches available for some systems. It gets even more complicated when different operating systems have different versions. So with OpenSSL, for instance, we were usually running a different version of OpenSSL than most of the Linux distributions. So OpenSSL would announce they had this, this bug with a patch and then I'd look at it, well, that patch doesn't work for us. We need to you know, find a new version that works for us. So there were these, these coordinated advisories and it, it was often a, a few weeks between when word came to us that there was a bug that needed to be fixed and when everybody was ready to, to put the advisories out. So I was getting advance notice of all these things and okay. all this information was on my laptop. And one day I was thinking by myself, if anybody got their hands on my laptop, mm. things could go very badly. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, it happened at the time. There were, there were several different issues sort of all coming out at the same time. And so I'm thinking, okay, so, so this one will, this exploits a bug in, in the OpenSSL stack. And then this is a, 
a bug in the web server, and then this is a bug in in the mail server, and yeah, you, know, oh. you could you could sort of imagine how an attacker could sort of leverage one to get to where they can attack the next one. So yeah, I, I was I was a bit worried about that, and then I thought to myself, wait, if somebody gets their hands on my backups, they would also have access to all this information. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, like most people, I hadn't been doing very good backups. Um, backup, you know, it, it, unless you have something that can run from a cron job, you know, if it's something you have to do manually, you know, if, if it's your, your job to be a sysadmin, then you know, you know, an hour before you go home from work, you, you plug in the tape drives, whatever. Uh, but if, if it's your own personal data, you're probably not being all that diligent about it. So I, I thought to myself, I, I want to have a backup system that, the backup will actually happen, which means you know, I really want it to be online because that way it can run automatically. I, I have an internet connection, yeah. it'll just work, but I really need it to be secure because if somebody gets their hands on the backups, then you know, it, it's not good for FreeBSD yeah. or for anybody else in the world of computer security. Yeah. Um, so I, I started looking around and, and there really wasn't anything out there that had you know, security that, that I would trust, really. People had hacked together some tools, you know, generate tarballs and, and encrypt them with GPG, that sort of thing, mm, but yeah. nothing really sophisticated. So I started asking my friends, you know, do you, do you know of anything? Everybody sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, no, but if you find anything, let us know, because we want it too. And at a certain point, he said, okay, well, maybe I should do this, <laughs> because... I, security is what I do. Some of the work I did in, during my doctorate is somewhat related in, in terms of, uh, so I did work on, on binary patching. You may have heard of BSDIF, which is a tool I wrote yeah. for updating FreeBSD uh, more efficiently. So I, one of the key things you need to know for, for, generate, for doing efficient backups is to have some understanding of sort of how data changes from one archive to the next archive, because you want to avoid storing data inefficiently. Um, okay. So I, I sort of, I had the, the background I needed and I thought, well, nobody else is doing it. So maybe I should do it. And so I sat down and started writing code. And about a year how later, was the, I had... How was the transition from, I guess you had the transition where it was, okay, the project just got bigger and bigger and you were like, hey, I'm gonna offer it to other people. When was, so, uh, how was that? Yeah, I, I mean, so, so the, the, the nature of, online backups, or particularly with the design that Tarsnap has, it needs a, a backend that stores data. So Amazon S3 is, is what I wanted for that because it, it is incredibly reliable. Doesn't have fantastic performance, but it's, it's good enough performance for, for backups. But you know, they, they, they do not lose any data. I, I, have, I have never heard of them losing any data in the 14 years that S3 has been running. The, the closest... Oh that I'm aware of is that there was an incident, I think it was 2007, where they had a, a, an issue with a network card that was corrupting bits, and if you didn't properly sign your requests, then they wouldn't detect that they had failed a checksum or something. But, I mean, that didn't affect Tarsnap because I was signing the requests properly. Um, nice. But, uh, you know, as I trust S3. Uh, everything since then has actually made me trust S3 more, is seeing how they've responded when there's been outages. You know, they... There have been times where they've they've had the option: do they sort of hack something together quickly that should get it back running quickly, or or do they just go the conservative route of well, just shut everything down and and go with what the the recovery route they've tested, and they they went with what they had tested before. Nice. Um, 
it was an outage, I think, 2009 or 2010. The S3 was down for like eight hours. And oh. reading between the lines of, of their post-mortem, it was clear that they could have gotten it back up earlier, but they weren't 100% certain that they wouldn't lose data. So they went with the, what they knew was going to be safe. And you know, for backups, I would rather have an outage than any risk at all of losing data. So yeah, S3 is what I want for the backend. But you also need to have some code sitting in front of that for me running my own personal backups, I didn't want to be paying for a server sitting in EC2 all the time to be doing yeah. that. I mean, there's smaller, cheaper instances now, but back then, you know, it would have been $100 a month paying just to have something that could manage my backups for me. So I essentially, I, Paul Graham commented some time ago, there are certain things that naturally have to be companies. And this is sort of one of those examples. Uh, it didn't make financial sense for me to build this backup system quite apart from the time you know, to, to write all the code, but it's not something that makes sense to run for myself personally. But yeah. if I had a whole bunch of other people using it, they could share the costs and then it becomes something that makes sense to run. So from the beginning, I, I was planning on this being something that I would be running and other people would be using and they would pay me something that would sort of cover the costs and you know, that way I wouldn't be paying lots of money for my own backups. And then over the years, it just became more and more people using it to the point that you know it didn't take all that long before this was a entirely reasonable full full time job for me. Oh. How long did it take before it went plus minus zero before you actually made some profit on it? Uh, I mean, ma making a profit was a few months. Um, oh, I mean, a few months after I, it was publicly available, it, it took. It was close to eighteen months before I, I had people paying for TarSnap, actually, before it came out of the you know, early private beta. But I mean, you know, most of that, like, it, it takes time to write code, right? Yeah. Uh, once I had code out there that people could use and you know, sign up through the website and pay me money, you know, TarSnap as a the service was paying for itself very quickly. Now, for it to be a full-time job, you know, it needs to pay me as well. So yeah, yeah, that, that took longer, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how did the community react? Were they all happy that you finally solved the backup problem? Or oh, yes. how I mean, has user people... adoption been? I mean, it sort of grew outwards from the communities that I, I'm part of. So the FreeBSD developers were some of the first people using it because you know, they all knew me. I was a you know, FreeBSD security officer. And then it sort of moved outwards from there to general FreeBSD users, system administrators, and Linux developers, and Linux sysadmins, and you know, then people from OS X started using it, and then people from started wanting to run this on Windows using SigWin. So, you know, it really spread through word of mouth, going outwards from the people that know me personally. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. So, how did you get into the FreeBSD, and how what sparked your interest there? How did you get involved with FreeBSD? So, uh, in 1998, I think it was, uh, my parents got a cable modem. Oh. At which point we had, you know, high-speed internet access to the home, but it it had you know, one Ethernet connection. You know, didn't have Wi-Fi or anything like that back then. Um, so we needed to have a computer that would share that to the rest of the house. So fortunately, that we had already networked the house together so that we could print things on our parents' printers. But yeah, we needed to do something to to network the house so that we could all share this internet connection. My brother actually had already been experimenting with Linux by that point, I think. But he, he sort of looked around and said, uh, OpenBSD is a thing that we should use for a firewall. So okay. he 
he set up OpenBSD and, and for about a year it was running the, the network address translation for us. And uh, I can't remember exactly why it was that he wasn't around at the time, but it, that system broke. I think the, it was an old hard drive and the hard drive just gave out. So for whatever reason, my brother wasn't around and I, it fell to me to fix this. Okay. And I tried, you know, I got a new hard drive, I, I mean, a new old hard drive from a, some, you know, one of the old computers, and I couldn't figure out how to install OpenBSD. Oh, okay. So I looked around and found this thing called FreeBSD. It had the FreeBSD handbook, had nice instructions on how to install FreeBSD. Okay, I'll, I'll try doing this, and nice. I managed to get FreeBSD to install. Awesome. So that became the... Uh, network address translation box for the for the house and i'm i may be one of the only people who started using freebsd because sysinstall was easy to use freebsd's old sysinstall has a reputation i mean we don't use it anymore but but that code had a reputation for being absolutely terrible and you know it was originally written for freebsd 2.1 or something and by the point i was using it people had been saying for many years we really need to get rid of this and get a new installer <laughs> so but it was better than OpenBSD's installer, at least easier to use for me. So uh, that's what I ended up with. It, it's what I could get running and, and share the internet connection. Um, at that point, for my own personal use, I was running Windows all the time. But it was my first exposure to uh, Unix systems, apart from the, the university's computers that I would Telnet into. Um, no, no SSH back then, just Telnet. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, no, it, it was a start. And then you got uh, deeper and deeper into it, or...? Yeah, so, so for it, after or? that, um, I went to, to university. I was doing research. So during my undergrad, I put together this project called PyHex, which was PyHex. calculating okay. the quadrillion, well, a few different things, but in the end, the quadrillion binary digit of Pi. Um, okay. And this used something like a thousand computers around the world. It was coordinated, oh, wow. originally coordinated over email, but eventually I set up a web server on my Windows computer that was serving requests from around the world. Um, you know, machines asking for more work and submitting their, their results back. So th this was one of the, the, the major distributed computing projects of the, the late 90s, you know, like the Mersenne Prime Search and uh, Distributed Net. So when I went off to, to Oxford University for my doctorate, I, I was planning on doing similar sorts of things, but extending it to more general computations. Um, okay. Not just these embarrassingly parallel things like searches where you get a, a range to search and you either report back, yes, I found it or I didn't find it, but computations where you'd have computers doing work and then exchanging data with each other and then doing more work and you know, a lot more coordination of, of the different systems. But... I was worried that if I got a large amount of uh, computing power coordinated, I would need, really need to worry about security. You know, I would be having my code run on all these people's computers, and you know, I don't yeah. want somebody to, to um, exploit that to take over their computers. I wouldn't want people to exploit. I mean, obviously, um, Bitcoin mining wasn't around at the time, but you know, th there are there's things that you wouldn't want people to be doing with, with other people's computers anyway. Yeah, of course. Um, of course. You know, sending spam, for instance. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was really concerned about the security of the systems I had for coordinating all this. And so I thought, well, you know, Windows isn't very secure, but I've, I've used FreeBSD a little bit. It seems pretty good. So I was using FreeBSD for this. And uh, novice FreeBSD system administrator, I, I had trouble with simple things like keeping it updated. 
because at the time, when you wanted to update the system, it was, here's a patch file, apply this to your source tree and recompile everything. Oh, okay. So, yeah. in uh, 2003, I decided, well, I, this, is, this is too hard for me, so I'll, I'll make it easier for myself, and I wrote a tool called FreeBSD Update, which was binary security updates for FreeBSD, with, so one system would be building all the updates, and then everything was cryptographically signed, so it was secure, and then other systems would just download it and apply the updates. Hmm. The name, of course, FreeBSD Update, was, came inspired from Windows Update, which I had been using on my Windows laptop at the time. But, you know, it, it was a tool, so, it was useful to people, and so that sort of got me involved in FreeBSD. So um, you became a package maintainer then? Or... Well, I mean, FreeBSD doesn't have the, the concept of, of package maintainers the way that Debian does. Um, okay, right. I became a, a FreeBSD developer, so I, I, somebody with, right. with commit rights to the tree, and I joined the, the FreeBSD security team originally, actually, mostly just so I would have advance notice of the security patches, so that I could get, could get the binary updates built faster. Um, okay, all right. But once I was on the team, then I started saying, well, you know, not sure that this patch is right, you know, what, what happens if this, you know, somebody runs this code against it, and, and you know, you know, find bugs in the patches, you, you find... You know, this stock, this part of the advisory isn't written very well. How about we change it to this? And you know, then eventually they said, "Well, gee, you you seem to be, uh, you know, have a good understanding of this. How, how about you deal with this next advisory?" Uh, so you know, you, I sort of moved from being part of the team to writing more of the advisories. And then uh, when uh, Jacques Fritschkin, the the security officer at the time, needed to step down from the role, he was moving to work at Apple and just too busy working for them. They asked me to take over as security officer. So I had that role for, I think, seven years. Oh, why did you quit? Was it uh, too uh, time consuming or? Yeah, in, in the, so around 2012, I think it was, 2012, 2013, something like that. It, it was just becoming a, an issue of time. Um, Tarsnap was taking off at that point. So, you know, I, I had more customers sending me emails all the time. The FreeBSD security officer role, it's a difficult role to fill because you need somebody who has a very good understanding of security, who can write reasonably well to, you know, write clear advisories. They also need to be able to jump into an issue and work on it full time for a few days. Okay, okay. Uh, so it's not really all that compatible with having a full-time job somewhere. Yep. It is, however, very compatible with I'm sitting at home writing code for something that isn't going to launch for a while yet. Because if I had to take some time off from writing code for Tarsnap to, to work on an advisory, I could do that, and then I'd get back to writing code on Tarsnap later. You know, when I didn't have any customers, nobody's going to notice if I did work this day or a few days later. Uh, but yeah, it just became too difficult to juggle the two roles of running a startup with customers and being a security officer. Oh. So are you, are you working full-time on Torsnap right now or? Yeah, Torsnap has been my, my full-time thing for a long time now. Um, oh. I, I, I used to do right. some consulting, but again, I, that also got dropped around the same time as the FreeBSD security officer had because I was just too busy with Torsnap. I mean, I, I still contribute to FreeBSD. I'm the maintainer of the FreeBSD EC2 platform. So, oh. and in fact, this came out of my needs for Tarsnap. I wanted to be running FreeBSD in EC2 because I wanted a nice secure server that I could administer easily. It didn't work in EC2 yet because they had a really old version of Zen and a whole bunch of issues. Anyway, I, I've, I've given conference talks about all the things I needed to fix to get FreeBSD working. 
But yeah, so I talked to a lot of people in EC2. Amazon engineers have been incredibly helpful to me there, I have to say. Worked with people in FreeBSD who were working on the, the Zen support and a number of other things. Recently, I was working with Warner Losh because he was fixing some issues with NVMe drivers, oh. which were causing issues with the latest generation of EC2 instances. So, you know, part of my role there has been writing code, but more of it has been sort of coordinating between all the different people working in, in different bits of the VSD tree that are relevant to, to EC2. But yeah, I'm sort of the, the guy that's in the middle of everything as far as having FreeBSD working on that platform goes. Nice. Did you imagine that Torchnet would be so big as it, as it is right now? I looked at your website and like Stripe is running it and a lot yeah, of people Stripe, are Stripe it. has been a user of Torchnet for a long time. I, they started using it very early in their, in their days, actually. I, I knew uh, Patrick from Hacker News. So okay. Huh. Tarsnap was actually one of the three first Canadian companies to use uh, Stripe oh, after they, they nice. expanded. I, I, you know, originally, they were just in the US. They expanded to Canada uh, a couple of years later. And uh, yeah, Patrick reached out to me and said, you know, I, I know you've, you've been waiting to use Stripe, but <laughs> now's the time to get it set up. So yes, uh, Patrick in particular, but also you know, Stripe in general have, have been uh, very helpful to Snap over the years. And you also have uh, Michael Lucas, the BSD space own book publisher that's written a book about your tool. He did. Yes, it's a, a very good book on the, the shelf behind this wall. Uh, I have a copy of it sitting, but uh, yes, you know, he, it, it's a, Michael is an, an incredible author. He, he can take very boring technical content and make it sound interesting. Uh, yeah. And you know, explaining the, the command line options to tar is kind of boring technical content. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's a fantastic book and I've recommended it to many users of TarSnap. And interestingly, uh, it's also worked the other way around. Um, people who have read many of Michael's books have bought that book and then decided to start using TarSnap. Great. I don't think I would personally buy a book, I mean, as much as I love Michael's writing, I don't know if I would buy a book about a tool that I wasn't yet planning on using, but I'm glad that they did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that must help. Did you proofread it or were you- Yes, yeah, so all the way through the, the process of, of writing it, you know, Michael would send me a, a chapter or so at a time and ask me, you know, is this all technically correct? You know, sometimes even while he was in the, in the middle of writing a chapter. So I'm, I'm not quite sure about this. Uh, sometimes he, you know, found issues in the documentation for TarSnap. So it, it, the man page says this, but when I run the command, it does this other thing. So yeah, you know, it, it was useful to, for me as well, just having him uh, looking through things carefully. Yes, I, I did. I proofread everything uh, very carefully because you know, it, it's the only book about TarSnap. So I, I definitely want to make sure it's accurate. Absolutely. So TarSnap uses S-Script a lot. Was, was S-Script your first choice or did you change the cryptography after a while uh or? Uh... Was, well, uh, so, why did you choose so S-Script? Yeah. I didn't choose S-Script for TarSnap. I invented S-Script for TarSnap. So one of oh. the, when, when TarSnap first launched, um, it had, I mean, it, it still has um, key files with, you know, you, you, you register a machine, you get the keys to access, you know, you encrypt the data, decrypt the data, access the server. Um, when it first launched, those were not password protected. A lot of TarSnap customers asked me, you know, can you, make these password protected. And to start off with, I just said, oh, well, just use OpenSSL, ANC, you know, put it into a memory disk, something like that. But, you know, enough people wanted it to be built into TarSnap. So I eventually said, okay, I'll, I'll sit down and figure out how to do this. Uh, and uh, then I was looking at the ways that people 
use passwords to encrypt files, and it really wasn't very good at the time. Uh, the, the key derivation function that OpenSSL Enc used was MD5. Not, oh. not even oh. like MD5 repeated a thousand times like FreeBSD's uh, password hash had been doing for 10 years by that point. Uh, it was just MD5 run once, which oh. means that you know, if you had a file encrypted with OpenSSL Enc, you could search through the password space very quickly. You know, Tarsnap is backups for the truly paranoid. So I thought, yeah. oh, this is not good enough. I, I need something better. <laughs> so I, I yeah. looked at the, the literature for about password-based key derivation functions, and they, it wasn't very good. I mean, you know, there were a number of people who had this same idea of, well, take a function like MD5 and, and run it many times. That, that's something. Bcrypt effectively does that, although it uses the blowfish cipher, which is a bit more complicated than, than standard um, hash functions. The, the standard used for anything that needs to deal, deal with government systems, of course, was NIST's uh, PBKDF2. Again, it just iterates a, a, a hash function many times. So, you know, I, I'm a researcher. I, I thought, well, how can we make this better? And, yeah. you know, you want to make something that, that is difficult, that is expensive to run on ASICs, you know, custom designed chips, well, you need to make sure that it needs a big circuit. And how do you make sure it needs a big circuit? Well, you can't have lots, a huge amount of computation happening there because you can't do a huge amount of computation on a regular computer very cheaply. And also lots of computation takes up lots of power. So, yep. but, but what you can do is make it use lots of memory. So how do we make a function that you need, need lots of memory? Well, I went through several iterations, but eventually I came up with S-Script. So yeah, I mean, S-Script was the, the first key derivation function which is designed to use as much memory as, as you actually can with a key derivation function that runs a certain amount of time. You know, if, you, if, you, if your, your function is running for order n time, it's impossible to use more than order n memory because you can only write to one lo memory location at once, essentially. Um, but you know, S-Script is asymptotically as secure as you can get. So after about six months of research and writing code, yeah. I had this, this new key derivation function and, and uh, I announced it at BSD CAN, I think 2009. Uh, and about a week after I, I released it to the public, uh, it was part of Tarsnap. Whoa, that's and amazing. I, it's been used for a number of other things since then, um, including various uh, cryptocurrencies, although they tend to use a rather nerfed version of it. Litecoin started this with a, they, they took S-Script, but they were worried that S-Script used too much memory. So okay. they limited it to, I think it was one megabyte of memory, which since the whole point of S-Script is it uses lots of memory, making a version of it that doesn't use a lot of memory is kind of missing the point. Why did they do that? Because of uh, performance I, or? Uh... I, I, I think it was an issue of they, they wanted to make sure that, that S-Script mining could be run on small systems or, or small, oh, okay. you know, they wanted to make sure that you could run an S-Script client on a smartphone or something. I, I, they wanted to be able to run on systems that didn't have a lot of memory. Anyway, in any case, yeah, that design decision kind of missed the whole point of S-Script. So I make the point to people uh, when, when they talk about how S-Script is being used in cryptocurrencies. No, it, that's, that's not really S-Script that's being used there. No, it's a port of it, yeah. Well, it's, it's a, a, a version. token port of it, yes. So yeah, something I think is also very, very good with Torsnap project is that you have a bug bounty on it with like clear guidelines of this is how you submit a bug. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a researcher and find something bad, this is exactly what you do. H how was uh, how was that gone? 
So, I mean, I, I had actually been planning on doing this for a while, um, but it didn't happen until somebody found a serious bug and reported it to me, I think it was 2011. Um, hmm. And uh, then I said, yes, so I was planning on creating a bug bounty. Um, well, here's, here's the bug bounty that doesn't exist, but you, you deserve the money anyway. Um, and, and now I'll, I'll announce it for everybody else as well. Um, it's been very successful, um, a lot, far more actually in the, the couple of years after I first launched it. There, there were a couple of people who um, made very systematic attempts to, to go through all the Tarstap code looking for bugs. Uh, there was somebody who I think, the, the, the numbers are on the Tarstap website, but I, I think he, he had well over 100 bugs that he found. Oh, wow. uh, and I mean, a lot of, a lot of them like, well, the, the majority of them just things like this this comment doesn't have a period at the end of the sentence oh okay oh right this this More line like of code that, right? isn't indented properly it, it, it's got a, oh, a space okay. in the tab rather than just a tab um i i want to get those trivial um, cosmetic issues fixed as well um because they're annoying when you're reading the code um yep. but also because having people going through and catching those those one dollar bounties it means that they're they're looking at the code and what I learned working with FreeBSD is most bugs, most security bugs that we had to deal with were not found by people looking for security bugs. They were found by mm. people who were looking at the code for other reasons, usually because they were working on something in that area and you know, were going to be changing the code to you know, add some new feature or something. And they say, wait a minute, that looks strange. Okay. Wait a minute. You know, what, what, that, that code doesn't look like it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. <laughs> Um, uh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it is incredibly valuable just to have people looking at the code, even if they're not looking for any, you know, even if they're not thinking about security, just to have them have people looking at the code and saying, what does this do exactly? Does it do what, what I think it's supposed to be doing? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy to pay out the, the $1 bounties just because it means that somebody was looking at that code. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in a sense, it's a, a, the, the $1 bounties are a, a proof of work. If I could, I would be very happy to pay people to look at code, even if they don't find any typos or you know, indentation issues or anything. But the, it's hard to know if somebody's looking at the code unless they yeah, like of course. tell you about it. So, um, yeah. so because, because you're actually storing other people's data, how has it been with like, have you gotten any like subpoenas or takedown requests or no, requests but, um, from third parties that they want I, you I get a scary email? Because I mean, there's, there's nothing I would be able to do anyway. I, I, I can't, it's all encrypted. I, I can't look at the data. I can't tell what that data is. It, you know, if, if somebody, if the Canadian government sends me a, a subpoena, you know, some court case, you know, give us this guy's data, I can say, well, Okay, Who is this guy? I, I suppose I can give you the encrypted data, but it won't help you. For, for the record, they have never asked. You know, okay. Similarly, you know, the, the NSA might be able to go to Amazon and, and get the data out of S3, but as far as I know, yeah. they haven't. Of course, you know, yeah. US national security letters, whatever it is, I wouldn't necessarily know if they had done that, but it wouldn't help them anyway. And yeah, you know, takedown requests and so on. There's, there, I, I, Fortunately, courts understand that you can't order people to do the impossible. Yeah, so that's good. If I received anything like that, I would just say, well, sorry, I, I, I don't know what data it is that you want taken down. I, similarly, I, I've had customers in, in Europe ask me about GDPR, and my answer to them is, well, 
if you want to delete data, you can delete data. But if you have a customer that wants their data purged, well, it's it's up to you to figure out How what to, to do, do about your archives because I, I don't I know don't which know. bits yeah. belong to that customer. That, that's awesome. Do you get a lot of uh, emails from people that lose their keys and stuff like that? Yes. That's probably the most common support request I have. Uh, I lost my keys. Can you delete the data? Because, you know, obviously they, they don't want to be paying to store data forever that they'll never be able to access. It's unfortunate. Just occasionally I, I get emails saying, I lost my keys. Can you help me get my data back? And well, the answer to that is very simple. No, I can't help you with that. But you know, I, I, most people who use Tarsab sort of understand that you know, the whole point is that I cannot get your data back. So I, I get very few questions like that. I've had a few questions that are somewhat more awkward. Things like, we just fired our sysadmin. Can you help us and get our has, data back? Or, and he has um, the keys. Oh, yeah, he, he has the keys. Or, or, oh, oh. Or, or we have the keys, but he's the only person who knows the passphrase on the keys. Oh. And, you know, various other variants of that, you know, our, our sysadmin just went off on his honeymoon for two weeks and we don't know how to get in touch with him. Um, oh. But, you know, again, I, I can't help with those sorts of situations, uh, except preemptively by warning people, you know, be aware, you, you ideally have some system in place where you check that you are able to restore your backups, pretend that somebody is just got fired or got sick, is in the hospital, got hit by a bus, is on his honeymoon, um, and, and make sure you have a way of restoring the data even without some critical person. But, I mean, pe everybody's been very understanding, but, you know, when a company's desperate, they really need their data back, uh, they're, they're going to ask. I, I can totally understand that. Yeah. So for uh, all of our listeners that, has a, that want to try out TorSnap but uh, haven't tried out TorSnap, do you have any best practices or recommended uh, usage? Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of suggestions. Um, first, of course, make sure that you, you test restoring backup. The, the most common situation, the, the most common case where people write to me and say, I, we've lost the keys, is they had a server. That server was storing data regularly. They decommissioned the server, but they never copied those keys anywhere else. Now, oh. usually it's just they no longer need that data. But occasionally, it's they decommissioned the server, or the, the, the server broke rather, and they they actually need that server's data, but they don't have the keys. So, you know, make sure you put the keys somewhere safe because you won't be able to get your data back without those keys. And if the keys are on the same system that you're backing up, and not anywhere else, then at the point you need to get your data back, you probably will not have access to those keys. Do you so, know if anyone has lost their keys and uh, then tried to spend a lot of money recovering those keys? Yes, I, I have. And... I, I've I've heard stories about people sending disks off to data recovery services to uh, you know to take apart the disk and read it with some special tools to to try to recover their Tarsnap keys. Um, was it successful? I, I know. Or... Hmm? Was it successful? Did uh, they succeed I, I, in it? Or... At, at least one case was. I. I I think there was at least one case that wasn't as well. Um, oh, okay. I, I, I know of several people who have had uh, file system corruption and oh. they were able to recover their keys just by doing a, a DD input equals disk pipe through grep. 
because Tarsap tar key files, they, they're actually they're small enough that they'll fit into to one sector on a, a four modern four kilobyte disk. And oh, wow. they they start with a, a header, I think it's start of Tarsap keys or Tarsap keys start here, something like that. Um, and they, they end with a, a similar line. So Odds are, I mean, if you have if you have an encrypted disk, obviously you won't. You won't. But if you have, if your disk is not encrypted, then you odds are you'll be able to recover your tarsap keys just by reading the raw disk and looking for the the start and end lines. You know, obviously not something That's you nice. want to be relying on, but it's. Possible. I'm happy to say that that has worked for several people. That's nice. That's very nice. So, uh, what does the future hold for tarsap? What features are you currently working on, and what do you want to have in tarsap? Um, so right, right now I'm, I'm mostly working on backend issues, um, improving the performance of the, the data store that I use on the backend. Um, a lot of this work will make it easier for me to add functionality to the website. So things like letting people log into the website and say, I've lost the keys to this machine, delete this data for me. Obviously. At the point that I'm going to be doing that, I want to have other functionality in there, like letting people say, here's my GPG public key. If I request anything, send an it's encrypted email to this address oh. to get confirmation. One thing that Tarsap doesn't do yet through the website is letting people reset their passwords. So I get quite a few emails from people who have forgotten their passwords. Um, so obviously I wanted to uh, get that not doing run through the website. So yeah, there's, there's a, I have a long list of, of functionality I want to have on the website that is sort of waiting for me to, to finish restructuring the data store. I, I don't want to add a whole bunch of stuff which is being stored in an, an old data store and then have to change it all to use a new data store. So I want to get the, the new data store in, in place first. And then, yeah, once that's done, then that same data, well, a duplicate of that data store would end up getting used for improving the there's a lot of data that's stored in a file system, you know, a whole bunch of small files, which really should be in a, a more sophisticated data store. Once that's done, then uh, I can do things that will improve the performance of Tarsnap, both in terms of how much data throughput I can get and also uh, to make extracts a bit faster. Right now, extracts are relatively low performance because they're latency bound. The way that Tar works natively, it will read one block of data, figure out what to do with it, and then read the next block of data. That works great if you're reading from a tape or from a, a local disk. It doesn't work quite so well when you're on a different continent and it takes you know, 200 milliseconds to request each block. Yeah. So people in, in Europe have, have been a bit annoyed by uh, the time it takes to restore their data. People in Australia have been very annoyed by how long it takes to get their data. Now, there, there's ways around this. Uh, the easiest way to speed up Tarsnap extracts is to do multiple extracts in parallel because that way Tarsnap can, each process can extract a different set of files um, and, and then skip over the data from the other files that they're not extracting. Another option for people in far-flung parts of the world is spin up an EC2 instance in the east coast of the US. You can extract data to there very easily and then copy the data out somewhere else. Of course, at that point, you're trusting Amazon with the data if you do that. So you know, it depends on, on your security needs. but. Yeah, once I have the, the back end of the server reorganized through the different data store, uh, I can handle more requests in the parallel, uh, then I can restructure the client to actually make more requests in the parallel, some sort of um, prefetching of data. There's, there's a lot of, of trade-offs there. You know, if you prefetch too much data, then you end up slowing people down by downloading data 
that they didn't actually need. But there's reasonable ways of doing the trade-offs that are better than just only read one block at a time. How do you run ForSnap? I must, I think because you're the, I assume you're the longest running user of ForSnap. So you must figure yes. out the perfect uh, way to continuously do backups. So all of my systems I have doing backups every hour. Um, With cron or? Uh, just running from cron, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. All of all of the servers are just backing up the entire system every hour. Um, on my laptop, I'm backing up Etsy. I think Etsy user local Etsy and my home directories. On my laptop, you know, I, I've got a lot more software installed on my laptop than I do on the servers, of course. You know, I've got, you know, yeah. KDE, Chrome, Firefox, Thunderbird. There's not much point archiving all of the the binaries for those programs. Um, yeah, if I if I if this laptop dies and I get a new laptop, I'm going to be reinstalling those. I'll be downloading those those tools, all those packages anyway. I'm not going to want to restore the old versions of them. So you know, there's no point in archiving those. But my home directory, obviously, I want to to have archived. Um, a few exclusions. You know, I don't want to archive the uh, Chrome's cache because those you know, data files come in and out of that cache. They're not likely to be useful, but if I did archive that cache, it would be more than half of the data I was uploading every every day would just be these temporary files. But uh, yeah, that's that's a, you know my home directories, a few configuration files, uh, and then exclude things that I know change frequently and aren't useful. And oh, okay. uh, I'm I'm careful to with my my servers and, and my laptop doing backups. I do not run any hourly backups at. On the hour, I don't run any of them on the half hour. I, aside from that, I, I, when I'm setting up a system, I pick a random number between 1 and 59. That's the minute that it will run on. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's also interesting about TorSnap, this entrepreneurial aspect of it, that you managed to build this startup that was very successful in doing that. Do you have any recommendations for people that are, uh, that are thinking of starting, not a backup service, but uh, a similar concept of starting their own uh, stuff? Recommendations for running startups. Uh, there's a lot of people in the, the startup community who'd say that I, I'm the last person to ask for business advice. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I mean, a lot of it is, is sort of the, the basic principles that everybody already knows. You know, if you build a, bit, a good product, that's, that's the most important thing. If you can make sure that your existing customers love your product. TarSnap has never spent money on advertising except for... Uh, oh. I did a I spent maybe two hundred dollars as, as an experiment on you know Google Ads. AdWords and uh, oh. I think a little bit on Facebook. I I, I didn't get any customers from that. Tarsnap spends money um, sponsoring open source events. Um, it's been a, a sponsor of BSD Can, the BSD conference in Ottawa, um, for a long time. Um, and the Free BSD Foundation as well. Right? And, and yeah, so so. Nice. I, the the way I, I the way I've I've worked it is that every year Tarsnap contributes an amount equal to its December profits to open source. So essentially Tarsnap makes money for eleven months of the year and then the last month is making money for open source. Um That's awesome. Now of course, you know, I don't want to wait until December to give money to people, so what's happened is I mean I can sort of predict roughly how much money I'll, I'll have um, from the December profits. But early in the year, I will spend money, you know, sponsoring BSD CAN conference, your BSD CON I've, I've sponsored twice, I think. Um, 
have a feeling it was another conference. I can't remember which one. The the BSD Now podcast I've been sponsoring for a while. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, then at the end of the year, whatever's left in the budget, you know, when it comes to January 1st, and I know how much money Tarzan made in December, I say, well, okay, take off what I already gave to open source earlier in the year, uh, and the FreeBSD Foundation gets what's left. That's awesome. That's great. I mean, really, Tarsnet would not exist without open source. It, it runs on FreeBSD, but it's also built around LibArchive, which was written originally by Tim Kainzel. And when he started writing it, he was a FreeBSD developer. And in fact, he, he started writing it because he wanted to build a, a better package tool for FreeBSD. So in a way, it also only exists because of FreeBSD. Um, but you know, without the, the BSD-licensed software, I, I wouldn't have even gotten started. You know, if, if in 2006 I'd been thinking to myself, maybe I should build a, a backup tool. Wait, there isn't anything out there I can use. Uh, I, I need to write my own code for generating tar archives, for you know, traversing the file yeah. system and figuring out what. No, no, I, I don't want to do what deal with that. So yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah it, it was it was because LibArchive existed that handled the the tar aspects of things because Amazon S3 existed that handled the the durable storage side of things. The stuff in the middle, you know, writing code for cryptography, writing code for networking, that stuff I'm good at. But the stuff on the either side, I I have no talent for and I would not have wanted to do. So it's only because those things existed that that I could fill that gap in the middle to to create Tarsnap. So I, I, I owe a lot to the open source community, and I feel that uh, giving you know one month out of twelve back to the community is really the least I can do. Was Scrypt your first crypto project, or or have you have you been involved in other cypers? And I mean, I I, I had or... I had implemented uh, a whole bunch of crypto code before, um, but okay. Scrypt is the first new cryptographic algorithm that I developed. So yeah, Escript is, is the first thing which is my own as opposed to just my implementation of somebody else's algorithms. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's really impressive then. Well, I mean, that, that's, you know, everybody starts somewhere, right? Uh, if you look at all of the, the major people in the, the crypto world, they all got started by, you know, reading other people's research papers and implementing their code, you know, writing code for other people's algorithms and, you know, maybe implementing attacks on other people's algorithms and you know eventually you, yep. you, you learn enough about these things to to feel comfortable doing your right own. Your own. Yeah. yeah. And I mean even with Escript, you know, I before I published it, I, I sent it around to a bunch of cryptographers and said, hey, this seems like something you might be interested in. Um does it does it look right to you? Do you see any problems with it? And what feedback did you get? I, it, it was all very supportive. Oh nice. Uh, I, I'm I'm not going to mention names because I don't know if people want to be, to be uh, you know it was no, on five emails on but yeah. but no I mean I, it was all very supportive people um, you know some people saying yeah I, I I sort of I was thinking about doing this a few years back but I never got around to it you know it, it definitely seems like something we need you know I, seems like your design is good you know the, the the proof of security you've got makes sense so no it, it was all very very positive feedback that's that's amazing I, I think I think yeah. people. Uh, don't realize how generous academics are with their time with things like this. Um, I, I mean, it was it was mostly university professors I was writing to, and you know, they 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 spend their time teaching, they spend their time doing research, but they also spend their time reviewing papers for journals. And you know, it, ha having having someone write to you with 
I mean, you know, they, they get a whole bunch of garbage as well, but, but having someone write to you with something that's re reasonably well written, you know, it happens to me as well. Pe people send me papers and, you know, I, I, I really enjoy seeing people's research. So, uh, you know, if people have, have novel, well-written research, um, you know, don't, don't hesitate to, to send it to, to academics. It's part of their job to, to look at these things. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it was, it's funny you mentioned this. I was talking with uh, Stephen, a good friend of mine who's an academic professor yesterday, and he is working on like a research uh, magazine, economical ma uh, research magazine, publishing research in, in economics and stuff like that. And I asked him, how do you, how do you manage to read all these uh, white papers and all these uh, essays? Mm -hmm. uh, over the years and he, he was like I love this I get so intellectually stimulated and uh, it's just so fun to see all this new research mm -hmm. and, and he's been doing that for like 40 years so uh, yeah. they're, they're and, truly you know, amazing academics, academics will be very helpful even if you're not sending them anything new uh, I mean I realized, realized this in the middle of my my doctorate when uh, I I was looking at a, a paper which was written by a, an academic at, I think it was University of Texas. Um, I, I needed some more information about the, the test cases he was using for the paper. Um, so I sent him an email at, at his university email address, the, the one that was in the paper. Um, and about 12 hours later, I, I got an, an email back from Amazon because it turned out that since writing that paper, he had left the University of Texas. He was now a, a vice president at, at Amazon. Oh, wow. But despite being you know, one of the most senior people at Amazon, this was 2002, I think, maybe 2003. Um, so Amazon didn't have very many vice presidents back then. Um, but he was very generous with, you know, he, he, he loved the fact that, that a, a doctoral student was, was writing to him asking for information about his research. Um, he, he was incredibly generous with his time uh, to, to help me out, um, even though he was, you know, obviously very busy um, helping yeah. to run Amazon at the time. That's awesome. Is he still, uh, still around at Amazon or do you know uh, what he's doing I, now? I believe he moved to Google in 2005 or 2006. I don't okay don't recall where he is now. He might still be at Google. I don't know. All right. So is there anything we missed about Tarsnap that we didn't um, cover? About Tarsnap in particular? Uh, can't think of anything. Um, what One tool that sort of spun off from Tarsnap that we haven't talked about yet is S-Pipe-D. What is S-Pipe-D? So S-Pipe-D is a tool for creating symmetrically encrypted secure pipes. So a lot of people have used S-Tunnel. Um, yeah. It's similar to S-Tunnel, except with S-Tunnel, you're using TLS. You've got one side has a, a TLS certificate. The other side is connecting to it, you know, validating host names, whatever. S-Pipe-D, it does not rely on TLS because it, it, it's not relying on certificates. It's not asymmetrical like that. It is, you've got two systems. You want them to talk to each other securely. You put a key, the same key on both systems. And that okay. pre-shared key is used to secure the connection. Because of this, it is far simpler. It's grown slightly over the years, but uh, last time I, I looked at it, it was something like 5,000 lines of code. How, so, how do you get you know, the same key to both, uh, to both machines securely? Well, I mean, the idea is these are both machines under your control. Okay. So, okay. for instance, uh, one way I use it, um, 
I have a mail server for Tarsnap. All of the, yeah. the outgoing email uh, and also my personal incoming email go through that mail server. Okay. Every time I deploy a new server for Tarsnap, I put a key file onto that server, which is the, the SMTP key, which okay, is okay. shared by the mail server. And we're using, using that key and S-pipe D, the QMail on the, the new server sends email to local host port 8025, which connects to S-pipe D, which connects to port 8025 on the mail server, which is S-pipe D, which then connects to port 25 on the loopback interface on the mail server. We just talks to QMail again. So there's there's unencrypted connections over the the loopback interface, but the the connection going over the internet or over Amazon's it's network, encrypted. yes, um, is all encrypted with S pipe D. That's great. And is that running S script as well, or what? Uh, no, it, it's not using S script because you don't need for a case like this. You don't need to use, be using passwords. Um, okay. The whole point of S script is passwords don't have a lot of entropy in them. So you need to have a, a strong key derivation function that sort of boosts the amount of entropy you have. You know, you're not actually increasing entropy, yeah, but you're increasing yeah. the, the cost of searching. Um, yeah. For something like SPIPE-D, uh, generating a key file is just get 32 bytes from dev random. Um, you know, 30, oh, right. 32 bytes from dev random is 256 bits of entropy. So that's a secure key for you. Oh, yeah. So, so uh, how does SPIPE-D... How does, sorry, how does Torsnap use this? Well, so, uh, I mean, all of the servers that want to talk to each other, whether it's um, servers sending mail to the mail server, whether it's um, systems connecting to the, the package building system so that I can get new FreeBSD packages on these systems uh, that I built myself um, every night, um, whether it's me checking my own email, I have POP3 running over SMTP, uh, sorry, POP3 oh, running oh. over S-pipe-D um, going to the oh, mail yeah. server. Um, so essentially, it's just, it's a way of having a, a socket, connecting to a socket, encrypted socket. But, yeah. but it's encrypted. So, you know, suddenly it doesn't matter if these sockets are on the same system or on, you know, the same network or different networks around the world. It's, it acts just like a TC, opening a TCP connection, except it's secure. And it's just a drop-in, you know, instead of connecting to port 25 on the other system, you connect to S-pipe D here, and then S-pipe D there connects to port 25 on, on that system. Oh, nice. So, you know, it's, it's pipes for connecting things together. <laughs> That's basically what it comes down to. But, it, you know, it's a very simple tool, but it, it makes so, much, so many things more easier and uh, removes worries. And, you know, you, you can do these things with S-tunnel, but then you need to worry about every time there's a new OpenSSL vulnerability. S-pipe D, you know, it's, it's really simple. It, less code means less vulnerabilities. Yeah, yeah, and, it has, and that code has been, has, has it been any CVs to that code or has it been audited by an external party that has found bugs or? Uh... It, it hasn't, hasn't had That's any it's... formal audits, although, I mean, the Tarsnap's bug bounties do apply to it. I think there were a couple very small issues, you know, typos and so on. Um, no, no serious bugs people have found in it. Obviously, I would be very happy to uh, have more people looking at it. But yeah, I mean, there, there have not been any security vulnerabilities found in it to date. Oh, and that's good. You know, given, that's good. given how simple it is, I, I really don't know how you could... It, it's hard to imagine any place that you could have a security vulnerability or, or really any bug at all that, that wouldn't make, make S-pipe D just stop working completely. Um, 
one of the nice things about cryptography, if you encrypt things wrong, they won't decrypt correctly. Yeah. With uh, things like TLS, where there are many different protocols that people can use, you know, they start with a negotiation, you know, I, these are the protocols okay. I like, these are the ones that yeah. you like, okay, let's pick this one. It's easy to have bugs lurking there because most people will end up using the same protocol, but there might be bugs in the ones, protocols that people don't use. S5D, there's only one protocol. The data is encrypted with AES, it's authenticated with HMAC SHA-256. Um, if there was a bug in there, it, it wouldn't work. So it, it's the design as well as the, the simplicity makes it something I would trust far more. Uh, and why did you create that? Just to have a secure socket way or did you want yeah, to I, I wanted another to tool? Or... Have, I wanted to have uh, systems able to communicate, communicate with each other securely. Um, you know, part of it was being able to check my email securely without dealing with um, going through OpenSSH and, and S-Tunnel, but... Uh, Actually, I think originally I was checking my email going over um, SSH-L, but uh, anyway, you know, there, there's different tunneling tools you can use, um, but I wanted something simpler. Using uh, persistent SSH connections means that when you move to a different network or your network flakes out, connections die, you need to restart them. Yeah. Um, with S-Pipe-D, um, it behaves like a TCP connection, so... Nice. If, if you if you move to a different network, well, obviously the connections you already had open die, but you open a new connection, it just opens a new connection. That's very nice. And uh, when did you start this project? I th I have a vague feeling it might have been 2012, maybe 2011. Uh, I, I, would, I would have to check the website just to be sure, actually. Uh, but it's it been around for a while, anyway. Um, we, we, we do new releases periodically, although... There haven't been many major changes to it. Um, mostly it's just you know minor cleanups to library code it uses. Um, oh, what, one other thing I do with S-Pipe-D actually is I do SSH over S-Pipe-D. Okay. So I never SSH into servers directly because OpenSSH has had bugs over the years. So I have oh, open so you had the extra layer of security. Exactly. So I have OpenSSH awesome. listening only on the loopback connection. And then this, this very simple cryptographic protocol uh, is encrypting the, the OpenSSH connection. Does it affect the latency of it? Or does it make it slower? Or uh, any, it, any performance issues? It, it doesn't affect latency. Um, I mean, at, at when, when you first open the connection, there's one round trip of network handshaking, of cryptographic handshaking. So, you know, adds some milliseconds there for opening the connection. Um, but the, the cryptographic operations to establish connection are very fast. Um, and then once you've got the connection running, um, packets are padded out and, you know, there's a checksum added, each uh, rack added. So, you know, reduces the bandwidth very slightly, but, you know, for certainly from connecting from home uh, over the, the internet connection I have here, um, it, it's not anything that I would notice. Um, if you're you know, trying to run multiple gigabits per second, you would probably notice it, it, it can't sustain that because the, you know, the crypto operations slow things down. But um, for, for the sort, sorts of purposes I use it for, um, no, there's, there's no performance impact at all. That's great. And is it, uh, is it ported to, uh, to a wide majority of... Uh, as, so you're maintaining as... the packet. It's on OpenBSD, uh, FreeBSD? 
Yeah, or... so as far as I'm aware, uh, SYP will run on any POSIX compliant system that has OpenSSH. So that has OpenSSL. Because I, I use okay, OpenSSL right. for some of the basic crypto operations. Not, not for any, I, I, don't, I don't use any of the TLS protocol stuff, but I, I use the, the basic fundamental crypto operations from there. Uh, but yeah, there's people running SYPD on FreeBSD, OpenBSD, NetBSD, Linux, Solaris, OS X, Irix, Windows, um, Minix. Oh, nice. I know there's a few others out there I haven't mentioned, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it should run basically anywhere that you can imagine that's remotely Unixy. That's nice. Is it written in C or? It, it is all written in C, yes. Nice. Yeah, I think I've gotten through them, all my questions. Have I, have I forgotten anything that you want to mention? Or I can't think? think of anything else. All right. Me personally, I think it's amazing what you've done. Just uh, created this, this startup project that has just grown tremendously and actually providing really good value. And then you're like, hey, we need to create some secure functions. And then you create S-Script, which is uh, amazing. So thank you for TorSnap. I would thank like you. That. So where, where do people follow your work? I mean, you can go to the Tarstap website and, uh, you know, Tarstap obviously is there and on the, the left side of the, the page, you'll, you'll see links to the open source projects there as well. So you'll see S-Script, S5D and, and key value, which we haven't talked about, but it's a, a key value data store, not at all relevant to security, but some people may find it interesting. Um, oh, nice. Is it fast or? Uh... Yeah, so, so that, that's the, the data store I'm, I'm developing for, for use for the Tarstap backend. And uh, it's sort of, it's tuned for what I need personally, but yes, it is designed to be very fast. I mean, on, on a single system, we're looking at like half a million op key value operations per second. Oh, that's nice. Have you looked at other uh, like LM, uh, level DB and uh, LMDB and uh, existing I, ones? And... I, I looked at a lot of other key value data stores and um, I, I wrote my own because I didn't think that they were good enough. Awesome, awesome. And, and you're running it. To, are you running it in production, or? Uh... Uh, it is. It's currently running in production for some parts of the Tarsnap website. It's not being used for the Tarsnap service itself yet. Um, that that will come hopefully fairly soon. But yeah, I, I, I'm sort of obviously the the Tarsnap service since it's you know storing backups. That's that's the last place I want to put anything new. So I want to make sure everything's. Yeah. Thoroughly tested on, on other places and, first. Yeah. Yeah. Do you look, do you do a lot of CI testing? Like, uh, how do you how do you test that uh, it's not gonna break everyone's backup? I mean, I, I test system built up or yeah, I I, I have a, a bunch of tests that I run. You know, I I can deploy a sort of a copy of the Tarsnap service onto my laptop. Obviously, you know, di a different S3 bucket and so on um, to, to run various tests there. And then you know, all the components get tested separately as well, of course. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. I certainly learned a lot and I'm, I'm thankful that you keep TorSnap awesome and uh, secure. Thank you. So, yeah. Thank you. And have a good uh, rest of the day. Yeah. You too. Bye.